It's Swigart, Ken. It's Swigart. Uh, I imagine that the most interesting thing that he said was that I raised 200,000 bees. Uh, and it's true, my wife is a beekeeper, and, uh, and we like to make our own honey. You know, it's kind of a cool way to bless our neighborhood and, uh, and taste it, too. So um, I wish I would have brought enough for you all. Um, I'm going to talk about honey in a second. I do send greetings from, uh, from the Bay Area. It's, uh, I was telling Ken last time I was here, I was here on Palm Sunday. And uh, it's an amazing thing when you come from one community and then you sit with another community and you listen to the way that y'all talk and the things that y'all care about. And, uh, and if I close my eyes, it's like, ah, oh, there's a culture here that just matches the culture of the community that I'm a part of in San Francisco, um, which just says something about the way that the spirit is moving in different places, you know? And, uh, and the way that, that um, the, the space between heaven and earth is getting very thin in places like San Francisco and places like Bend, Oregon. So, uh, so I kind of feel, this is my first time um, speaking here, but I kind of feel like I'm speaking among family, and that's really a, a cool deal. So um, my wife and kids are devastated they're not here with me. We love Bend, and uh, my daughter in particular is really upset that she's not here hanging with Ken's daughters, and, uh, but, um, but they say hello as well. Um, I want to spend some time looking at Jesus. Uh, I'm just incredibly compelled by, uh, by Jesus. And, uh, and so I asked Ken, what, you know, are, is there a series that you guys are doing or is there something in particular you want me to talk about? And he said, why don't you just bring um, what's most important to you? And, uh, and said, so, okay, I'll talk about Jesus a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I'm compelled by a Jesus who... Um, I'm compelled by a Jesus that is compassionate, but, uh, but I'm... I'm equally compelled by a Jesus that's magnificently defiant. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean here in a second. I, I want to um, help us understand where my framework for Jesus comes from. If, um, if you can imagine Jesus as a little boy, at one point or another, he would have walked into some kind of classroom setting. Maybe it was a synagogue or a little bit of a lecture hall. And there would have been desks and Jesus and his little bros, because girls weren't allowed to go to school then, which is kind of, that stinks, but... Jesus and his buddies would walk into this room and, uh, and there would be a slate on their desk and the slate would be covered in honey and then the rabbi would walk in, the teacher, and would say, um, I want you all to grab your slates and begin to lick your slates clean. And so these little boys would begin to lick their slate, this, this honey, and, and in that time, honey was the most exotic thing. It was the most delicious treat. And so as these little boys would be licking their slates clean, the rabbi would read Psalm 19, which speaks of the words of God, the scriptures, as sweeter than honey. And then the rabbi would say to these little boys, as we're about to embark upon a study of the scriptures, I want you to remember that the scriptures are the most exotic and exhilarating thing. And then they, from that moment forward, they would give their lives to the study of the scriptures with the taste of honey on their lips. How many of us had a honey-licking experience as little tiny kids? Some, well, I didn't at all. Um, I didn't know Jesus growing up. I came to know and follow Jesus when I was 19, and so I didn't get to lick a, a slate of honey. Um, but what I did find really early on is I, I just started to read the Gospels, and I... 
um, I recognized something of Jesus and the way that he lived his life and how he spent it and what he talked about and what he cared about. It was the most exotic and exhilarating thing. I, as a 19-year-old, began to recognize that following Jesus is not about becoming morally intellectual with a Jesus flavor and maybe socially oriented a little bit, but that following Jesus is a white-knuckle adventure. It's full and it's about flourishing and we laugh harder and we cry harder and we literally at times hold on for dear life. And so the scriptures for me have become this exotic and exhilarating adventure because the scriptures point to who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what Jesus thinks about and what Jesus talks about and and how Jesus spends his life. And in looking at Jesus, then we begin to discover who God is and what God is like and what God thinks of us. And so this morning, I want to go to um, uh, multiple scriptures. We're just going to go all over the place. And we're going we're gonna to look at a Jesus that, um, that is maybe different than a North American understanding of what Jesus is like. I don't know what the word on the street in Bend is yet about Jesus. Um, but where I'm at, and as I, as I travel throughout the United States, I'm recognizing that the, the common consensus on Jesus is that he was this inoffensive nice, hippie guru that, that walked around and said, be nice. Now, I don't know what your picture of Jesus is, but what I know is that people never got crucified for saying, be nice. People got crucified because powerful kingdoms down here got threatened. And so while Jesus was compassionate, Jesus was also magnificently defiant. He stood in direct opposition of any system that broke people and of any kingdom that opposed the kingdom of God. And so um, so we're going to look at the the defiant Jesus, if that's okay, um, trusting that he is too compassionate and gracious and all those things. Um, To do so, I want you to go to Luke chapter 3, and I want to set up a little bit of the power structure. I'm sure with Ken as your teacher, you're well-versed in a lot of this. Um, But in 40 BC, a man named Herod became the king of the Jews. He was known as Herod the Great a little bit later on. He was a master visionary, master builder. Very few minds could look at a space like Herod the Great could and see visions of what could be built there. He was the one that finished the temple, and then he built these palaces and kingdoms all throughout what's now known as the Holy Land. Um, Now, while he was a master builder and visionary, he was paranoid. He was sick in his brain. The story that we know about Herod is that one about these three kings from the east that visit him and say, hey, we followed a star here. Because a king has been born, and Herod the Great is the one who says, okay, yeah, can you go find that two-year-old, maybe-ish king? I'd like to worship him too. In reality, he wants, to, he wants to eliminate that king. The Herod we know is the one who then, when those three kings deceived him, found Jesus, and then left in another way. It's Herod the Great that issued a genocide order in Bethlehem to have all of the little boys ages zero to two eliminated. This is kind of the, the sickness, the, the paranoia of Herod the Great. Well, it gets much more insidious. Herod the Great had 10 wives. He had 43 children. Uh, his most favorite, prized, cherished wife, her name was Miriam. And um, at one point... Herod the Great figured that Miriam was getting a little too ambitious for her two oldest sons to take over Herod's throne when he died. So rather than having a conversation with Miriam about that to even see if that was true, he brought Miriam, Miriam's mom, and those two boys into his chambers 
and then brought out a knife, killed the two boys, then killed mother, all in front of Miriam, and then took her life. A little bit after that, his two eldest sons seemed to be getting a little too ambitious for his throne, so he had them killed. Five days before he died, and he likely died of an STD, he had his oldest son executed. As he knew that his life was coming to a close, Herod understood that on the day that he died, Israel probably wouldn't mourn. They would probably celebrate. And so he had all of Israel's religious elite grouped up and brought into, uh, into his prison. And he gave orders that on the day that Herod the Great dies, all of these men are to be executed because I want Israel to mourn on the day that I die. See, I mean, a little, yeah, a little off. He dies. Uh, there are three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. They all take a boat over to Rome because they want to meet with Caesar because they want to actually sit in Herod's throne. Rather than Caesar appointing one of them, he divides up the land in three different sections and gives them to all three of the sons. And so you've got Antipas in Galilee, you've got Philip over to the east, and then you've got Archelaus who's in charge of Judea which is where Jerusalem is. Are you getting the lay of the land a little bit? This is the power structure that Jesus would have been actually entering into. He spent much of his life in the Galilee, interacting with Herod Antipas, and then a little bit of his life in Jerusalem, um, hanging out with Herod Archelaus. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 14th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod, this is Antipas, being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. What Luke is doing here is he's saying, here's the who, who, who's who of the power structures of the day. You've got the Caesars, you've got the Herods, like these are the people who are in power and in control. They're the ones who kind of make the sun rise and set in the Holy Land. But then when the word of the, uh, of the Lord came, it didn't come to one of the who's who. It didn't come to someone in the power structure. Instead, it came to an untitled, unwashed, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert. When the word of God comes, the word of God doesn't necessarily come to the influencer. Oftentimes it comes to the ordinary radical, the person on the fringe, the person without any influence at all. And when the word of God came to John the baptizer, John began to preach a message and the message was that of repentance. John was basically saying, hey folks, let's clean up our lives. Like he was the one to actually make things straight in preparation for Jesus to arrive. And so he's saying, let's fix our lives a little bit. We're living chained to insidious sin. Let's stop that. Look at 3 verse 18. So with many other exhortations, John the Baptist preached good news to the people. But Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And so as John is preaching this message of repentance, clean up your life, folks. His message didn't have some kind of bias. He wasn't just speaking to people who were lower than him on the totem pole. He's speaking to the people of God. And that goes all the way to the very top. And what John the Baptist knew is that Herod Antipas had some funky stuff going on with his love life. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But John the Baptist finds out about it. And he goes, dude, that's messed up, Antipas. And he calls Antipas out. And so what does Antipas do? He has John the Baptist locked up in his dungeons. Now, 
isn't it interesting that an untitled, unwashed, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert is a threat to Herod Antipas? What's Jesus do? Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. A little bit to the left. Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Herod Antipas, he's feeling exposed by John the Baptist, so he goes to silence John the Baptist by putting him in prison where? Galilee. Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been put in prison in Galilee by Herod Antipas, and where does he go? Galilee. He doesn't turn and move in the opposite direction. It's as though Jesus is saying, Antipas, you think you can silence this movement by locking up John? You have no idea what you're up against. Try taking me on. Jesus moves to the place of greatest danger because that's where the kingdom of God needs to enter in. A quick aside. I'm not sure if people who follow this kind of Jesus pray prayers like this. God, would you keep us safe? Would you keep us away from inconvenience and away from trouble? Why? Because people who follow this kind of Jesus understand that our work is to join God in ushering in the world that he's making regardless of how much trouble it might mean for us. And so the question for us this morning, uh, one of them, really is, where is the most dangerous place for you and I to live and love in the way of Jesus? And I'm not just even talking about internationally. I'm even talking about Bend, Oregon. I'm talking about what feels risky or scary or dangerous. Maybe it's interpersonally in your family or maybe it's into something that's broken in this place. I don't know what it is, but there's a place that feels dangerous to live and to love in the way of Jesus. Are you there? Are you moving toward it? Are you running away from it? Followers of this kind of Jesus move into what seems most dangerous because that's where the kingdom of God needs to enter in. That's where brokenness needs to be repaired, where things need to be made whole. Let's move back to the story as to why John the Baptist was actually in prison. Here's the deal. Herod Antipas, as I said, he had kind of a funky love life. His first marriage was a political, uh, a political marriage. Uh, he married the princess of Nabatea. Nabatea was the empire just to the east of Galilee. And so Antipas is a smart dude. He's thinking, okay, Nabatea's big. They could attack us at any moment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to marry King Daddy Nabatea's daughter because surely he's not going to attack us if I'm married to her. And so this first, this first marriage is very political. And it's going okay. The problem is that, uh, that Antipas is actually in love with another woman. She's a married woman. Her name is Herodias. Uh, she's married to Antipas's brother named Philip, who's one of the Tetrarchs. 
and Herodias is also the daughter of another one of Antipas's brothers. So, for Antipas to take Herodias as his wife means that she will become his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law. Funky, all right? John the Baptist isn't about it. Uh, and so this is what he's calling out. He's, he's saying, Antipas, you can't do that, man. You can't do that for obvious reasons, but like you, you, can't, you can't do that. Well, obviously the princess of Nabatea, the first wife, she's not happy about this arrangement. And so she runs back home to King Nabatea. Of course, he's outraged by this whole thing. So he builds up an army of 20,000 troops and they begin to march toward Galilee. Antipas over here, who's in his love nest with Herodias, recognizes that there is an army coming from Nabatea. So he groups together a, an army of his own, about 10,000 soldiers, and sends them toward Nabatea. Of course, Antipas's soldiers are wiped out, destroyed. Go with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. G here Jesus is talking about the cost of following him. You see, Jesus isn't interested in people just kind of haphazardly having an emotionally up experience and saying, yeah, I'll give my life to you, and then not really doing anything with it. He understands that to follow me is costly. It looks like a cross. And so he's encouraging people along the way, if you really want to follow me, count the cost. Understand that it's going to be exhilarating and it's going to be terrifying and it will cost you everything, probably even your life. And so here's what he's teaching, Luke chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so at this point, everyone's like laughing and having a good time, and Jesus is like, ah, it's a, what kind of idiot starts to build a building and doesn't first sit down and, and make a budget, a project budget? Who does that? That person will be a fool because they won't be able to finish the building, and everyone will keep driving by that building and going, ah, oh, that guy, what a moron. So everyone's like, ah, Jesus, that's funny. What a great illustration. And then Jesus says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Suddenly no one's laughing anymore. This is current events. Everyone knows that Antipas's army was just wiped out by, by the Nabataean king. Suddenly people are going, Gee, Jesus, like, this guy's crazy. Like, if he keeps talking like this, he's not going to make it past, like, 33 or something. <laughs> but do you hear the astonishing defiance in Jesus? He stands diametrically opposed to any kingdom that opposes the kingdom of God. Back to the story. John is still in prison. And, um, and keeping in mind, like, John the Baptist, let's, like, undeify him for a second. This was, the, this was the guy who was, like, baptizing people in the Jordan River, and then Jesus shows up, and Jesus isn't like this wonderfully bronzed, handsome, like he's kind of a nondescript bro. Like nothing really stood out about Jesus, which was part of the point. There was power and authority in Jesus that came from the Spirit. 
You know, and so it wasn't like Jesus showed up along the banks of the Jordan and John the Baptist is like, holy smokes, that must be. He just knew. He was certain. And so it's John the Baptist who, while he's baptizing, sees Jesus in a crowd of a whole bunch of people and says, behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was crystal clear on who Jesus was. Now John the Baptist has been in prison for a long time. He's locked up in in the dungeons and he's chained up by Antipas and he's beginning to lose his certainty on who Jesus was. Why? Because if his cousin's the Messiah, surely he shouldn't be in prison anymore. And so John the Baptist, he sends out word to Jesus by his followers and they just want to know like, Jesus, are you who I think you are? Side question, and if so, why am I still here? And so this community of of John's followers go and they find Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, John the Baptist wants to know, are you who he thinks he is? And Jesus says, yeah, go tell him what you see. The blind, they see. The deaf, they hear. The mute, they speak. The lame are getting up and walking. The lepers are being washed up. And so without saying, yes, I am, he says an emphatic yes by pointing to Isaiah's prophecies. You see, Isaiah said that when the Messiah is here, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak, the lame will get up and walk, the lepers will be washed. And so Jesus is saying, absolutely, I am who John the Baptist is. Go and tell him. Now, in that day, the power structures, whenever there was a a transition in power, like from Herod the Great to Herod Antipas, a whole new set of money would be be minted. This is the way that they told people who was in power now. Uh, And so oftentimes what would happen in the Roman Empire is that the face of the leader would be minted onto coins. The problem in Israel is that they couldn't have graven images. And so rather than having like the face of Herod Antipas engraved or minted onto coins, the the leaders would choose a a symbol and they would mint their coins with those symbols. Well, Herod Antipas' symbol was the Galilean reed. And this is an example of of the the coins that were minted under Antipas' leadership. And so, uh, so everyone who's, who's around Jesus has these coins in their pockets and in their pouches. The, the John's disciples who come to Jesus, they've got these coins in their pockets and their pouches. And, and now they're on their way back to John the Baptist, a little bit confounded because they're like, okay, Jesus is who you think he is, who you think he is but it still doesn't mean you're going to be released from prison. And so they're on their way back there. And as they're leaving, in Luke chapter, four, um, sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 24, Luke chapter 7, 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are kings in courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Did you catch it? Jesus turns to the crowds of people who have the coins of Herod Antipas with reeds stamped on them and says, when you went out to see John the Baptist, did you go out to see him or did you go out to see a man with no principles, a man without a backbone? Did you go out to see a real kingdom or did you go out to see a phony, shakable kingdom that was blowing in the wind? 
Are you catching the magnificent defiance of Jesus? They would have heard Jesus saying, did you go out to see Antipas and his kingdom and sit under his leadership? Or did you go out to see John and a better kingdom? It's amazing how defiant Jesus was. But what I find beautiful is that his courage was contagious. And so his people that were following him, they kept listening to him talk this way and live this way, and then they themselves became courageous. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I'm especially drawn, of course, to Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. Now, like I said, Herod the Great was a master builder, built palaces all over the Holy Land, unbelievable ones. I want to show you a picture, um, show you two pictures. This first one, this is, uh, this is on top of Masada, which is overlooking the Dead Sea. And this is a huge palace that Herod the Great had actually built. Um, this was a part of the collection of homes and vacation spaces in Herod's dynasty in his family, one of many. Um, next slide. This is a picture of his view. And so, like this, from standing in this palace, you're literally overlooking the Judean wilderness and then the Dead Sea. Spectacular, breathtaking. Herod the Great was incredible. His boys inherited this. Uh, places like this, down south, up north, to the east, to the west. And they had so many properties that all the Herods would have to actually hire somebody to manage all of those properties. Well, Herod Antipas hired a man named Cusa and said, I need you to take care of my entire estate. And so Cusa would have made an incredible amount of money to manage Herod Antipas's estate. Sometime along the way, Joanna, Cusa's wife, has an encounter with Jesus, and it changes her life. We don't get to understand exactly what it was. Maybe she heard him speak, and it was something that he was saying about a new way of being human and following God that was compelling. Maybe she was sick, and he healed her. Maybe her friends were sick. Mary, maybe Mary Magdalene and she were besties, and he watched, she watched what happened with Mary Magdalene when Jesus encountered her and changed her life. I don't know what it was, but there was some kind of radical encounter that happened for Joanna that said, I will give my life to following this man. Well, what did that following look like? In part, it looked like her taking money that Cusa had made from Herod Antipas and bringing it over and funding Jesus' ministry. And so if we had like a list of Jesus' primary funders, Herod Antipas would be in like the platinum club. Divine irony. It's incredible. It's, it's as though God is standing in God's place going, huh, my son needs a little bit of money for his ministry. I'll take it from Antipas. Quick aside, brings, bringing us back to my original question. What's your picture of Jesus? How do you describe Jesus? The Jesus that you follow. 
how do you talk about the way that the Jesus you follow spent his life? Do you imagine a Jesus that is safe or a Jesus that's dangerous? Do you imagine a Jesus that colored inside the lines or outside the lines? A Jesus who was a rigid rule follower or a Jesus that was unconventional? Do you think about a Jesus that looks like you? Or a Jesus that looks something far different than us? I wonder how we would describe Joanna's experience of Jesus. Like, how would Joanna describe Jesus? I think she might say this. He was fully present and engaged. He was a risk taker. He actively opposed unjust systems. When he spoke to people and he touched their lives, it actually made a difference. It changed things in them. He demonstrated sacrificial love, and it was costly. It cost him something. Convenience was not in his vocabulary. He was consistently inconvenienced by the plight of people he encountered. He entered into the stories of all of the wrong people. He'd entered into all of the wrong places. He was dangerous, he was compassionate, and he was defiant. That's how I think Joanna would describe Jesus. How do I know? Because the Jesus that Joanna followed began to shape who Joanna was becoming. Joanna, no doubt, went from a posh life of abundance and affluence, living in the status quo of privilege. And as she followed Jesus, suddenly she began to leverage her privilege and redistribute her wealth for the flourishing of others. But keep in mind, this wasn't just like she had the family checkbook and Kuz is like, hey, whatever you want to do, babe. No, she's funding Jesus' ministry at the highest cost. It will cost Kuza his job and them their lives if it's ever discovered that they're directing funds to Jesus' ministry. The Jesus that Joanna followed began to shape who Joanna was becoming. The Jesus that we follow shapes who we are becoming. And so it really matters what you know to be true about Jesus. Your picture of Jesus, my picture of Jesus, it matters because it shapes what we begin to look like, what we begin to sound like, how we begin to live and love and lead in the contexts of our everyday. One final uh, picture of the defiance of Jesus. Go with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We're getting near the end of Jesus' life now. Pick it up in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. So these, these men that at least respect Jesus recognize that Herod Antipas wants to kill Jesus, is actually on a campaign to eliminate him. They find out that he's coming close to Jerusalem, which is a 
toxic space around the Passover time. And they come and they say, hey, look, you got to get away from here. The moment you set foot in this place is the moment that Herod will execute you. And Jesus says to them, you go tell that fox that I will be here today and I will be here tomorrow. And on the third day, I will have my victory. Now, in contemporary society, when we think about a fox, words like sly and cunning and deceptive come to mind, right? That's not the understanding of a fox in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, it would go like this. In the wilderness, a lion would make a kill. And the moment a lion would make a kill and would be distracted by just the extravagance of his or her feast, a fox would kind of come and sit at the perimeter and just wait. And when the fox had eaten its, its fill, it would begin to walk away. And as it walked away, the fox would kind of prance up and position itself over the kill as though it had made the kill. And so in Jesus' day, a fox is not someone sly, cunning, deceptive. In Jesus' day, a fox is a fraud, a phony, a wannabe poser. And if those Pharisees had the courage to actually go back to Herod Antipas and say, Jesus called you a fox, Antipas would have felt the sting. He would have known that Jesus would have been saying, hey, you know what? In this system down here, Caesar's the lion, you're a fraud. Or at a much bigger level, Jesus was saying, I'm the lion. You're the fraud. The passage goes on. Listen to this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. Jesus uses a fox to describe Antipas. But isn't it interesting, the animal that he uses to identify himself? A hen are you kidding me? I mean, a hen has no claws. It has no weapons. It has nothing to defend herself or her chicks. Nothing. I have 15 of them. Stupidest animals I've ever seen. And Jesus says, you go tell that fox, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you to me as a hen gathers her chicks. When a fox gets into a hen house, what's the only thing that a hen can do to protect her young? She spreads her wings and she offers her body as a shield. She offers her life so that her young can live. Friends, that is our Jesus. And not only did he spread his wings and die so that we could live, he spread his wings to demonstrate for us how we should live. What's your picture of Jesus? That's God's word for us this morning.